0: I want you to think about your family. What comes to mind when you think of your family? Are they good thoughts? Are they not good thoughts? Some of us are like, yes, I love my family. And some of us are like, I wish that someone would adopt me to be in their family because I don't like my family, right? Unfortunately, that's just the way the family works sometimes. Now, I, I feel really fortunate to come from a pretty amazing family. My dad is one of 11 siblings. My mom is one of seven. And all of my aunts and uncles have three or four kids each. So anytime we get together, it's somewhere between a large crowd and a small city. And I didn't I didn't realize how unique that was until now that I'm growing up. I'm like, man, that was amazing. There were just people everywhere. But more than the size of our family, I loved the unity in the community of our family. I mean, we, we love one another. We're not perfect, but there is a genuine sense of love for one another. And I've had several friends over the course of time tell me, I wish that I could be in your family. I wish your family could adopt me. Like that says something about the love our family has for one another. So there's, there's, there's that side of it, but there's also the genetic side of family, right? Have you ever seen the family where everybody looks like a carbon copy of one another? Like all the kids look exactly the same and it's really cute. As long as mom and dad don't look alike. If mom and dad look alike, you're like, hey, wait a minute. We got some questions that we need to ask here, right? Now, I love personally when people tell me or my wife that our kids look a lot like us, right? Because we think our kids are beautiful. But I don't think our kids like being told, you look like your 46-year-old dad who's getting chubby and he's got a lot of gray hair. Right? Sorry, that's how family works, kids. There's the community part. There's the, there's the genetic part. Well, last week, we jumped into this new series called The People of God, but we're going to be studying through the book of Exodus for the next several weeks. And if you don't know anything about Exodus, here's what you need to know. It's the story about a family, a family that begins in the book of Genesis. There's a man named Jacob and his wife, and they have 12 sons. And what we're going to see is those 12, that family of 12 sons multiplies into a great nation. But what really makes this family so special, the people of Israel so special, is not their size, but the fact that at one point in time, God says, you're my people. You are my people and I am your God. He claims them. And here's what's really cool. What's true for these ancient Israelites 3,000 years ago is now true for us today. The New Testament scriptures tell us that through faith in Jesus, not only are we forgiven of our sins, And we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're restored in our relationship with God, but we are adopted into God's family. We become the people of God. And as the people of God, we are called to reflect the nature and the character and the love and the grace of God to the world around us specifically by pointing people to his son, Jesus. And so as we go into this journey of of, of Exodus, we're gonna learn about the history of Israel, but we're gonna learn how to live as the people of God. So I wanna invite you right now to just open up your Bibles or scroll in your Bibles to Exodus chapter one, verse one. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles under the seats. And if you need that, take it home as our gift to you. If you have trouble finding the book of Exodus, it's actually pretty easy. It's the second book of the Old Testament, the second book of the Bible. So let's just jump right in. Exodus chapter one, verse one. Here's what we learn. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. Okay, let's stop because this will be really helpful. Israel and Jacob, same guy, two different names. He's born as Jacob. God renames him as Israel. So if that gets a little confusing for you, same guy, two names. His family becomes known as the Israelites. And then look at verses two through four. Here's the list of his sons. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Now we're going to get to that list of names in just a moment, but there's a detail hidden in this verse. It's hidden from us in English that's actually revealed through the original text in Hebrew. Because in Hebrew, the first word of this, of Exodus 1 1 isn't these. The first word is actually the word and. And that's a really important word because it's meant to connect everything that happens in the book of Exodus with everything that happened before it in the book of Genesis. So it's a continuing story. These aren't random stories. God's telling the same story over, well not over and over again, but he's connecting these things as we move through his word. And then you read this list of all of those, all those names I just read to you. Now those names are important because those are the names of Jacob's sons. Their lives have been chronicled for us in the book of Genesis. Another, another connection back to the book of Genesis. But it's interesting to note that while we read this book and we think of the book of Exodus, Jewish rabbis sometimes call the book of Exodus the book of names, because it begins with a list of names who are very important. It's this family that's been chronicled for us in the book of Genesis. So you get the point, right? These these books are linked. It's a continuing story. And look at verse 5. The descendants of Jacob, or Israel, numbered 70 in all when they arrived in Egypt. Now that number 70 is important for us. Because remember, in Genesis, it's a mom and a dad and 12 boys. But by the end of the book of Genesis and now into the book of Exodus, we've learned that their family has grown to 70, and they're gonna to continue to grow. Look at verses 6 to 7. Now, Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died. In other words, the 12 original sons all died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. If you like to read the message, sometimes the message paraphrase says, babies, there was babies everywhere. It sounds kind of like what's happening in gin Kids. There's just, we're, we're busting at the seam with all these little ones. That's what was happening with the Israelites in Egypt. And look at the words that Moses used, the author of Exodus. He uses seven Hebrew words to describe their growth, exceedingly multiplied, greatly increased, numerous and filled. He's letting us know the 70 were growing really quickly. They multiplied like rabbits when they got to Egypt. Now this is another important detail because it's a callback to two things, two places in the book of Genesis and the creation story. God creates the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, in his image and in his likeness, and he commands them, you are to be fruitful and multiply across the earth. You are to have children, and your children are to have children. So there's that command. But then if you move forward a little further to Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, we meet a really important man named Abraham. And some people would say that Abraham is the second most important person in scripture behind Jesus. Abraham happens to be the grandfather of, Of Jacob, who God renamed as Israel. He's the original patriarch. And listen to this promise that God made to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. Okay. Now, if you go from Genesis 12 to And you fast forward a few hundred years to the beginning of Exodus chapter one, we see this promise that God made to Abraham coming true as the Israelites begin to multiply and expand in the land of Egypt. But then look at what happens. Verse eight, then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies. They will fight against us and they will leave this country. So this new king dies and then a new pharaoh steps onto the scene and apparently he didn't know who the Israelites were or have any clue how they arrived in Egypt in the first place and it doesn't really appear that he cares because all he sees is a group of immigrants that are growing and expanding and he's afraid that something bad's gonna happen. And so look at what he says, we must deal with them shrewdly. He doesn't want them to leave. He just doesn't want them to grow. And so look at verse 11, look at his solution. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor and they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. So Pharaoh's shrewd solution to the growing Israelite population was slavery. And he had these people build cities for him and his people. Now, it's interesting in the text. We never, it never says that the Israelites were rebellious or disruptive. So where's the real problem? Well, the problem wasn't necessarily with the Israelites. The problem was with Pharaoh's heart. He was insecure. And his insecurity resulted in him leading his people, his entire nation, to respond With violence and racism towards the Israelites. And look at what happens as a result. Pay attention to the words here. But the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. And look at the words they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields and all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Now earlier, there were seven words used for the way that they were growing. Now Moses uses seven words to describe how the Egyptians are treating the Israelites. I think it kind of causes a question. Why? Why Were the Hebrews growing so quickly? Were the Israelites growing so quickly? Well, think about what we've learned today. They weren't growing so quickly because they were being oppressed. They were growing because God promised they would grow. He said, you're going to become a mighty nation. So that's why they're growing. But if God is responsible for their multiplication, well, who would be responsible for their persecution? Now I'm gonna give you a hint. It's not Pharaoh. He's just a puppet. Here's what I want you to see. The story that we're reading and studying in the book of Exodus, it's a history of the people, of the nation of Israel, but it's also an account of a spiritual war that's been raging on this earth ever since the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 through 3. Now, if you think back to the Garden of Eden, if you know anything about the story, who was there? Well, God was there and he created Adam and Eve to be there, but then eventually a serpent comes up and he is able to fool, to trick Adam and Eve into rebelling against God. His name was Lucifer. Ultimately, he becomes Satan. Now, I want you to pay attention to this detail because in his commentary on Exodus, Philip Ryken explains that the ancient Egyptians feared snakes, but they also worshiped them serpent worship was particularly strong in the Nile Delta where the Israelites lived. There, the Egyptians built a temple in honor of their snake goddess named Wajit, who was represented by the hieroglyphic sign of a cobra. And many of the pharaohs believed that this goddess brought them to the throne, gave them power. One ancient uh, Egyptian manuscript reveals that when Pharaoh first ascended to the throne, he would take the royal crown and he would say these words. It's basically a prayer. Oh, great one, O oh, magician. This one gets me. Oh, fiery snake. Does that bring any, anything to mind for you? Let there be terror of me like there's terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like there's fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like there is awe of thee. Let me rule a leader of the living. Let me be powerful, a leader of spirits. Who do you think they're praying to? Tony Marita notes that Pharaoh often appears in archeological records with a serpent in his crown. You can see it at the top of his golden crown there. So Exodus is very much a story of the history of the Israelites but it is also an account of a spiritual war where we can see Satan using Pharaoh and the Egyptians to in his attempts to wipe out the Israelites. Now why would he want to wipe out the Israelites? Because when God made a promise to Abraham to make their family great into a great nation, he also promised that one day a Messiah would come through their family. Why wouldn't Satan want to wipe them out? It's fascinating. Pay attention to this reality as we work through this because that same battle that's taking place in Exodus in Egypt 3,000 years ago takes place in our world today. And in the same way that Satan will do everything in his power to oppress the people of God, he is doing everything in his power today to oppress all of us, but specifically those of us that confess our faith in Jesus. And he wants to do everything he can to discourage us and to discredit us. And ultimately he wants to destroy us because he wants to limit the power of the gospel and the movement of the church for the sake of Jesus Christ so that people can find their way back to God. Pretty fascinating, right? The book of Exodus applies to our life directly. Now, if you keep reading through the end of Exodus one, you're gonna discover that Pharaoh's hatred towards the Israelite, it, it, it grows. It, it moves from forced labor to murder and infanticide. Look at verse 22. Pharaoh gave this order to his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now, if you stop and just think about what we just read, think about how horrific that picture would be. Babies being tossed into a river. Pharaoh just made a public decree and now it's open season on all Hebrew baby boys. I don't know that we can imagine how terrible this is, but it does make you wonder how Pharaoh's decree against newborns in Exodus 1 is any different than some of our legislation that fails to protect unborn and newborn babies in our world right now. So by the time you get to the end of Exodus 1, in the midst of slavery and murder, there seems to be this very clear sense that the Israelites are waiting and they are, they are wanting, they need a rescuer, a savior, someone who understands their troubles and can come and set them free. And thankfully, God Responded to their need in a very specific way. Now, I'm going to read Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 together. It tells a story, and the best way to tell the story is to let Scripture tell the story. So would you read this with, with me? Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, when he was healthy, she hid him for three months, But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. She placed it, placed the child in it and put it in among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. She said, this is one of the Hebrew babies. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Can you imagine how much courage it would have taken in faith for Moses' parents, especially his mother, in an attempt to keep him alive just a little bit longer, to put him in a basket on the bank of a river? And God does what only God could do. He rewards her faithfulness to him in a way that no one would have ever imagined because not only was this precious baby boy spared, But he allowed for Moses' mother to be able to nurse him and to raise him before handing him over to Pharaoh's daughter where he would grow up under the privilege of Pharaoh's care. That's amazing, you guys. They needed a savior and a redeemer and God is gonna beat Pharaoh at his own game. Now I wanna stop for a moment. And I want to jump forward to the New Testament because a few thousand years later, um, there's a man named Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He is telling the story of Moses' life to a group of Jews, and he fills in some important details for us here. Acts chapter 7, verse 1. This was written about a thousand years later. We read this. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in speech and action. In other words, he was raised to be a leader. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. Now, this is so interesting because those details are not recorded for us in Exodus. But Stephen says, let me tell you a little bit about Moses. He was a leader. And then he says, something happened when he was about 40 years old. Now you might think, well, why does that matter? Well, when he's 40 years old, we're going to read about the next event that took place in his life in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter two, verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, how old was he? He was 40. Ladies, if you're married to a guy and he's like 35 years old, he might not be fully grown up yet. There's still hope. There's still hope. One day after Moses had grown up, when he was 40 years old, he went out to where his own people were and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, and looking this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian And he hid him in the sand. Now, did you notice that phrase, his own people? What does that tell us? It tells us that Moses, even though he grew up in the home of the Egyptians for 40 years, he knew he was an Israelite. He knew the Israelites were his people. And he begins watching how they're treated. And he's like, somebody's gotta do something we've got to get going. We can't sit here like this. So he jumped into action and he kills this Egyptian slave master. He buries his body in the sand. Now those are really extreme measures, but it tells us that somehow Moses had an idea of his identity. And we don't know how he knows this. Is it possible that when his mother was raising him, she was able to share with him the stories of their family from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Somehow he knew, and he knew something needed to happen. Look at what happens. Verse 13. So the next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you gonna kill me the way you killed the Egyptian? I don't think that's the response that Moses was hoping for. Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. And then when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. So Moses sees his people's need. He jumps into action, but his fellow Jews, his fellow Israelites, They didn't recognize him. They didn't think, well, you're coming to deliver us. And so they reject him initially. And then Pharaoh hears about it and he has to run into the wilderness. Now, if you go back to Acts chapter seven, Stephen fills in another gap here for us. He says that Moses went into the wilderness where he lived for 40 years. From age 40 to 80, he's off in the wilderness. Now, can you imagine that being the second season of your life? Wouldn't that feel like just a waste, all this potential? But here's what's really cool about this. God isn't bound by time like you and I are. We measure things in years, but God is eternal. And he can do anything with anyone's life that he wants to. He's gonna do something so incredible with Moses' life because the 40 years that he is in the wilderness, God is going to prepare him to be the rescuer. And the redeemer that the Israelites would need. He's going to lead the people out of their slavery in Egypt and begin to lead them into the promised land. And we're going to get into those details next week. But first, I want you to see how Exodus chapter two ends. It says, during that long period, how long was the period? It's 40 years. The king of Egypt died the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. Verse 24, God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now, last week, when we started studying the book of Exodus, we said that there's six major themes that we're gonna see begin playing out in the book of Exodus. And the first theme we talked about last week was this theme of the character of God. And we learn a lot about God's character in verses 24 and 25. Look closely. He heard the groaning of his people. So God hears us. He remembers his promises To his people. Now, you might think, well, if he remembered, does that mean he forgot? No, that word remembered actually means he knew it was time to take action on their behalf. He looked upon his people. He sees what's going on in our life and he is concerned about their troubles and he is concerned about our troubles. And so here's what's fascinating about this what is true for the Israelites 3,000 years ago is true for us today. They needed to be set free from physical slavery. But whether we realize it or not, we all want and need to be set free from the slavery of sin and addiction and selfishness and all these things that pull us away from God. We need a redeemer. And as we study through the book of Exodus, what we're gonna see is there's a comparison between the life of Moses and the life of Jesus. Moses' life is meant to be a foreshadowing of God's ultimate redeemer and savior. And Moses and Jesus, they they share a lot of really interesting things in common. They were both born under kings who made a decree to kill all the young boys where they lived. And Moses and Jesus both survived, which if you think about it, they might not have had any other peers their age. They would have stood out in a lot of ways. Both of them spent their early years, the early years of their life in Egypt we just learned how Moses spent the second 40 years, the second chapter of his life in the wandering in the wilderness where he's going to meet God. When Jesus began his ministry at 30 years old, he spent 40 days in the wilderness to connect with God. But there's one major difference between Moses and Jesus. Moses is a lot like us. He messed it up a lot. He got angry. He did things he regretted. He sinned against God, but Jesus never failed. Scripture teaches us that Jesus is a better Moses. He lived a perfect life so that when he died, he died a perfect death to pay for every sin. He never sinned so that he could pay for every sin that you and I ever committed against God. And then when he rose from the dead three days later, he proved, I have the power to set you free from the power of sin. I have the power to give you life where there is death. Follow me, find life in me. From the very beginning, the book of Exodus is a picture of the gospel message, the the story of God's redemption and salvation for his people revealed specifically through Jesus. And there is a pattern that is found throughout scripture that pops up in Exodus in, in a pretty unique way. There's this pattern of God taking a place that is meant for death and changing it into a place of life and salvation. The first place we see this happen in scripture is after the flood. Everyone on the earth dies, but God, but God spares Noah and his family. What was meant for death leads to life and salvation. We see it happen in the life of Jonah. He's tossed overboard into the sea. He is supposed to die. And God takes a place that is meant for death and he brings life and salvation. In the book of Exodus, the Nile River was supposed to be a place of death. And his mother put her baby in a basket to a place that meant death. And God said, oh, I'm gonna change this. I'm gonna take this and make this a place of life and salvation. When the Israelites cross the Red Sea in a few chapters, they're being forced in the Red Sea to die. And God says, oh, you mean that for death? I will make this a place of life and salvation. Do you guys see the picture? It's pointing to Jesus's tomb, which was meant to be a place of death that God transforms into a place of life and salvation. That is the story of our faith in God. That is the story on the pages of the Exodus. It is the story that you and I are called to live out by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus. So this is not just an ancient history. It's calling us to how we're supposed to live Today to help other people see that Jesus has come to set us free from slavery and sin and death. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, I hope you're encouraged. It doesn't mean that life's always gonna be easy. It doesn't mean that Satan isn't gonna try everything in his power to discourage you, but greater is he, the Holy Spirit that lives in you than lives in this world through your faith in Jesus. He has come to set you free from every addiction, every sinful pattern, everything that's ever happened in your family, he wants to set you free and bring you from death to life. Now we need to encourage each other so we can walk this out together. We're not meant to do it alone, but it's the life that we're called to live. It's, it's what God did for the Israelites. Then it's what he's doing for us now. But if you've never, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I want you to know this. You can't claim to be part of the people of God because you've never received the forgiveness that he's offered you through Jesus. You don't have his spirit living in you. You've not been adopted into into his family, but all that can change today. All you have to do is realize, I'm a sinner. I need to be set free. And Jesus has come to do that for me. If you're ready to talk about that today, I'll be hanging out over over here after service. Or if you need prayer, come find me. We are called to be the people of God that represent the character of God to a dying and lost world. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for allowing this incredible history to be recorded for us 3,000 years ago. But it's not just a story of an ancient people. It is a story that you are calling us to live out today through faith in Jesus. Would you help us to see that Jesus is the better Moses? He is our ultimate rescuer and redeemer. Would you help us to find personal applications as we read this history of this people? Would you make us aware of the spiritual war and this enemy that we have that wants to destroy us? But would you remind us that through faith in Jesus, your spirit living in us is greater than anything he can throw at us. And so would you help us to live as the people of God's sons and daughters, your sons and daughters? empowered by your spirit for the glory of your son. Help us to live our faith, to share our faith, to share that there is freedom, there is life that can only be found in you. Holy Spirit, would you send us out of here anxious and ready to share this with the words we speak, with the way that we live. Help us to reflect your love as your people. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.